Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. Hey there, music lovers. Welcome to another episode of the Musician's Venture Podcast. I'm your host, Nick O'Brien. On this episode, we're diving into the world of Jesus Villa, a singer-songwriter who's led several different bands in the Milwaukee area, including the Front Porch Rockers, which he still plays with today. In 2022, Jesus formed The Unrulies, a band of seasoned and incredibly talented musicians whose unique brand of barroom rock captures the essence of good old rock and roll, a sound you'll hear more about later. Jesus is also the co-founder of the Kangaroo Lake Songwriters Collective, a songwriter's retreat that enabled him to write and record new material that resonated deeply with his soul, and that retreat led to the release of his first solo EP, The Lone Pine Sessions, in August of 2020. Despite his demanding full-time career as an administrator for the state of Wisconsin, Jesus has continued to write, perform, record, and release his original music. He's even found time to coach other aspiring songwriters, sharing his wisdom and nurturing their creativity. His dedication and talent doesn't go unnoticed, as he's a member of the Wisconsin Music Ventures Green Room and has been a featured artist on the Amplified Artist series. Over the course of this conversation, Jesus explores the delicate art of balancing his day job with his music life. The entire interview is sprinkled with valuable insights on the importance of balance, as well as his experiences integrating elements from both parts of his life finding fulfillment and joy in each. He talks about his experience of immigrating from Mexico as a child and his journey of assimilating into American culture while still cherishing his Hispanic heritage, which was a pivotal experience that was influential to his passion for creating music. He reflects on his first band in high school, which was an important foundation for his music career. Jesus also opens up about his love for borrowing ideas and insights from different genres and infusing them into his own unique sound. We talk about the Unrulies, how the band came together, and how their sound is encapsulated in their debut single called Lil White Lie, which you'll hear after this interview. Jesus shares his preference for both the stage and the studio, and while both offer him a different but equally fulfilling experience, he prefers the energy of the live performance. We dive into the Kangaroo Lake Songwriters Collective, a songwriter's retreat that Jesus started in 2017 to bring together like-minded musicians for a weekend of focused songwriting and collaboration. And he talks about how that retreat helped him understand the importance of being vulnerable and getting honest feedback about his songs in order to become a better songwriter, which is also a lesson that has translated to his journey as an entrepreneur as well. And our conversation comes to a close with Jesus reminding us that, above all, music is meant to be fun. He takes his music career and his business very seriously, But at the end of the day, it's the sheer enjoyment and pure love for music that drives him to do what he does. Jesus' story is interesting in so many ways, and this interview is packed with insights that showcase the value of his perspective on music and on life in general. Jesus is a truly authentic creative who's done something that is sometimes challenging for musicians to do, 
which is finding harmony between a day job, a personal life, and a passion and goals for music. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jesus Villa. Jesus. Hey, Ed. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm excited to chat with you. You know, we ran into each other a couple months ago at a WMV members release show. And I'm not sure. I know we had crossed paths virtually before, maybe on meetups or WMV workshops, but I don't know if we had cross paths in person. I don't think so. I think that's the first time we met in person, but we met online at different virtual events. And I think one of the very first things you did with WMV is you were connecting with people in just focus groups. And I was in one of your focus groups. Yeah, that must have been like early summer 2021 or something. Boy, yeah. time is a myth, huh? It like, really is. thought the other day, you know, it's been like three years or more than three years since like the pandemic started. And it's like, well, it's already been three years, but also at the same time, it's only been three years. Like, it's just a weird situation. But here we are. And I've been wanting to sit down with you for a while. You're a WMV member. You have been since the early days, a big supporter but wanted to dive in on just your story because you are an interesting person from the creative side. And then uh, what you had just told me before we pushed record about like the day job work that you do. There's a lot going on here and there's a through line through it all. And we're going to find it and we're going to share that with listeners. So let's start off by just kind of checking in. Like what's life like right now for Jesus? Life is good. So I am it feels like I'm always going through some sort of transition or another. I mean, right now, musically, the transition is heading into what for me is my gigging season, uh, because primarily I'm gigging during the summer months. Um, so that's going on. But I've also got my youngest about to graduate from high school, making me an empty nester, which is like you can't help but have that on your mind and be aware of that transition. And I started a new job, my day job back at the end of January. And it's a pretty intense one. And I, I crossed my hundred day mark and now I'm kind of feeling like, uh, I know a little more of what I'm doing or more accurately, I li- know a little more about what I'm not doing, but now I know it. And so I can manage it. So that's a pretty good place to be, but like all of that is going on right now. And then on top of that, just released a solo single. I've got our first single with my band, The Unruly's, that's about to come out, which is sort of a transition for that. There's a lot. I'm kind of a restless spirit, and I like being busy. Yeah? Yeah. You like these periods of transition. Do you find that you learn stuff about yourself during these periods? I have to stop and reflect on it to really figure out, all right, what am I getting out of it? But one of the things I've learned is that I, I'm much better when I'm busy at juggling balls than when I'm in that that in-between place where you don't really know, all right, what's next and things like that. That's what I find uncomfortable. When everything's going on and when different projects are in motion, that's when I'm at ease. That's when I'm a lot more at ease. I can totally relate, man. I can totally relate. (laughs) If you don't mind sharing with the listeners what it is that you do outside of music, I think it'd be interesting. Sure. So my current job, I work for the state of Wisconsin, and I essentially run HR services for all the state agencies. So I lead a staff of 350-some people supporting about 35,000 state employees. It's been great. It's a, a wonderful job and wonderful opportunity. But 
yeah, pretty intense kind of learning curve, getting up to speed. Haven't done anything at this scope before in my life, so it's been very exciting. That's awesome. And I would imagine that there aren't too many people who work in government jobs who were also like side hustling a music career. I could be wrong, but we do find each other. Okay. So there, aren't, there aren't many of them, but there's a no way when you discover that person. And usually somebody will say like, oh, you're a musician. You, have you met so-and-so? Because they're someone else who, you know, they've got that telecaster that they like to keep in their hands as much as possible and find a way to balance it. So I think everyone has to approach it differently, right? But there are a lot of people and more and more now, I think people find a side hustle. I was talking to um, a woman recently, she and her partner run an animal rescue on top of a full-time job working in human resources. You hear a lot more stories like that. People were, whatever, teaching dance on the side, or you. Um, I was talking to someone who was sort of a, an amateur opera singer, and people find different things to do. The question is, like, to what extent are you trying to balance those activities? To what extent is something just a hobby, you know, something you're just doing for fun versus, you know, how do you take it seriously? Like, how do you actually grow it and treat it as a professional thing? That's where I think people vary a little bit in terms of what they want, but you find what you need from it. You find what works for you. And how do you categorize it in terms of like the buckets? I don't get the impression that music is a hobby for you. It's not. It's something that I've done all my life, you know, or at least since 10 years old. So it's not something that I can let go of until at some point, I suppose my age or physical health will force me to. But until that comes, I'm not going to let go of it. But I guess the way I would answer it, two years ago, I got a letter from the IRS because I report self-employment income. But part-time musician is a modest source of income. And uh, I got a letter from the IRS that said this is like the third year in a row that you reported income of uh, under a couple thousand dollars, whatever it was. Have you considered treating this as a hobby, categorizing this as a hobby rather than employment? And I actually got mad. A lot of people get mad at the IRS for different reasons, but I'm like, it's not a hobby. This is this is self-employment. So basically, the IRS was telling you, you shouldn't be reporting this as taxable income? I shouldn't be reporting it as self-employment. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. yeah. Income is income, but this was, uh, I was treating it as self-employment. And, you know, eventually you calm down and you realize, well, I should do some research and figure out what makes more sense. For sure. But the other thing I would say, though, and kind of related to that is, it's nice being an artist and not having to do it for the money, because I think it's liberating in a lot of ways. Music is tough. Like it is, it's a tough industry and it's tough to make a living off of. And it burdens a lot of people out real quick. So to be in a place where I can take it seriously, I can create, and I do take it seriously. The model that I have is that the money that I make in music is the ceiling of what I'll spend on my music. Right? So what comes in, that's... Just an enterprise model. That's, that's what it is, right? But I'm not looking to, you know, build a nest egg. I don't care if I ever get rich. I have goals and everything else. But not having to worry about paying the rent off your music, not having to worry about where's your next meal going to come from, you know, and all of those things. And sometimes artists romanticize that. No, no way. Like, that, that makes it so much harder. And that's why artists end up 
moving out and burning out, quitting, or in the worst cases, right? That's what gets them hooked on drugs. It's what gets them living that destructive way. So I don't have any of that. I'm able to create on my own terms. My biggest obstacle is just finding the time, you know, in, in which to make that space. But I find it very liberating. And I think that although I've got different issues with the way the music industry is set up nowadays, it is easier than ever before to create good sounding music. And it is easier than ever before to release good sounding music and market it and get it internationally heard. You know, the single I mentioned with the Unreleased, the one that's coming out, is going to be released by a record company, an indie record company in the UK that I connected with a few years ago because I happened to hear something that I did. And so you think about this part-time musician, middle-aged guy from Milwaukee, releasing this song, and here's this young guy in the UK that says, hey, I dig your song, I'd like to release it in Europe. That wouldn't have happened, you know, 20 years ago, right? So all of that is really cool, and it does open up a lot of space for, again, not a hobby, but something that you can set goals around, take seriously, and grow into something, even while maintaining full-time job and, and family and all of that. Yeah, I mean, there is so much to unpack with the perspective that you have on this. And to be honest, I don't think I've done an interview on that topic. So we're going to zoom in on that a little bit. And obviously we'll get to your personal story and that journey as well. But I think there's a lot of insight that you can provide to artists who are on one side or the other, you know, because I mean, I struggle with this too. The work that I do is very nuanced. It's very hard to monetize because there's not necessarily like a direct line of fiscal impact that my work produces. But people have told me so many times, like, you could just do this on the side so you don't have to make money on it and, you know, just go get a day job. But for me, my work, which I'm sure a lot of artists can relate to, it's my purpose. Like, it's what I'm here to do. And it feels as though that doing anything else just to make money is doing a disservice to the blessing that I have of knowing uh, a purpose in my life yeah. and having the skill sets and innate abilities to deliver on that purpose. So with that context, what would you say to musicians? They're, they're creatives. And so they live in this gray kind of area, you know, intellectually. But when it comes to music, sometimes it's very black or white. I'm either going to like focus all on it. And if it doesn't work, then I'm going to get out of it and do it as a job. And maybe I'll only play the guitar around, you know, the fire or something like that. So I guess, how does your brain work in terms of compartmentalizing that? And obviously music is something that you're extremely passionate about and you've been that way for most of your life. How do you juggle them both like from a passion perspective? Is it easy? Is it difficult? Are you finding yourself like being inspired to write songs when you're at your day job or thinking about problems in your day job while you're on stage or in the studio or whatever? Like, just how does that all work? So it's a discipline and it's it's a learned discipline. I mean, honestly, because it is hard. It is hard to separate them. But there was a, a point in my life right at the end of college, undergrad. When you go to college, that by itself is a decision, but it's a fairly still somewhat of an open-ended decision, you know? 
if you're blessed enough to be someone where you go to college, you know exactly what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Power to you, but you're probably wrong, right? <laughs> but but you go through college, and at some point, you got to pick a path that's going to close off other paths that are, or at least make it harder to go up. And so for me, it was a question of whether I wanted to go on to be a writer at that time, whether I wanted to go into academics or whether I wanted to go to law school. So the way I made that decision is I realized that whatever path I took in terms of study career, that wasn't necessarily going to be my purpose, which doesn't take away from the passion that I you know, feel for music or honestly for the professional career that I grew into. But I realized that what I really wanted, for me, what I really wanted was a lifestyle. I cared a lot about having a family similar to what I grew up with and to be able to raise them in a stable way that at the time said, well, there goes being a writer. <laughs> That's not, not that you can't do it, but what really mattered to me, that was going to be a different path. But as often happens is even with that decision made, you can't let go of it entirely. And so for me, I realized real quickly that I have these two sides that I need to feed. I need the satisfaction that I get from a professional job where I, I feel like I'm making an impact in one particular way and I'm using parts of my brain in a particular way that I do find extremely rewarding is not enough. And I need to have those creative outlets. So I'm done community theater, I've done writing, and of course, music, you know. And at the time where I wasn't in a place where I could really run a band, I would still do the music ministry with my church, for instance. But there came a point where I needed more than just that, and it was to find that balance, right? So that's where I started reinvesting in my music career and growing it in different ways. And to a certain extent, that's still what I do. And it's funny, you mentioned the idea, you know, do you have song lyrics that pop in your head when you're at the desk? And you actually have to train yourself to compartmentalize, or at least I've had to train myself to do that. Because sometimes you do. I've got a, a songwriting group that I'm part of and we'll do a retreat weekend. And you can't come back from a retreat weekend with songwriters without your brain just racing, right? The spigot is dripping. Yeah. So sometimes you got to let that out. But at the same time, there is that discipline of being able to say, okay, no, not now. And you can't always get back to it. You know, you switch gears. But if you don't, that's not healthy either. Now, fortunately, right now, I've got a long commute when I go into my office in Madison that sometimes I'm just listening to audiobooks or podcasts. But even those, I listen to an audiobook comes into some passage and then you say, like many musicians say, that would be a great lyric or that would make for a great song. And then hit pause, work some things out, park in the parking garage. And, and the important part is before you get up to the office, pull out your phone, jot down your note, do the things we do, but then be able to put it down. And, you know, not some days it's harder than others, but you, you have to learn that. And writers do the same thing. The successful writers you can't just write when you're inspired and you have to have some discipline and structure around it. And that's the other reality of, of what I do. Like I can't just sort of be a musician on the side. I need to have some discipline around, all right, how am I going to approach my gigs? How many gigs do I need? 
what's the revenue coming in from these gigs to decide, can I buy a, yet another guitar, right? <laughs> like all of those things, by mapping it out and putting that thought into it, it actually creates the space where you can find that balance and you're not just constantly worried about one thing or another because you've got it a little more under control. Yeah. Do you think that that discipline or that structure comes more easily to you because your day job is in a more structured type of situation? I guess the question being like, do you find opportunities to take things that you have learned or you have to do in your day job that you apply to your music world and vice versa? Absolutely. And, and it's pretty cool, actually. So for my day job, I've learned a lot about project management and time management and the communication side of things. So my training is as a lawyer. And one of the, the big things you get out of lawyers, you, you being a lawyer, you, you learn to communicate. You learn to organize thoughts and arguments, especially as a trial lawyer. You have to be a storyteller. Well, being that and, and being a deliberate communicator helps me be a better songwriter for sure, you know, in doing that. But really what I think has made the difference is, again, that project manager. Like, I, I have project maps that I do project plans for my releases and for my career, you know, and it's mapped out in this way that most creators that I know, it's a, it's a foreign skill, right? But I need it. I know that it helps me and it helps me approach this better. And, and that's really valuable. It's also fun to see the other side of things where my creative side gets to influence the professional side. I used to really uh, fear that. And part of that comes from you know, if you're a suit and tie guy with some visibility in the community and, and, and you have to have a certain aura, certain image that you present, it's not always compatible with the idea of being a musician. But then there would be these moments. I remember one in particular, I was playing a, a gig at a, a beer garden and my boss, senior partner at a law firm, happened to be coming by. And he saw me and looked at me and there was this this moment where he knew he knew me from somewhere, but he couldn't place it. Not because he didn't know me, but because I was in such a different context, right? And a lot of times when you perform, you're performing in essentially a costume, the bright shirts and things like not a suit and tie. And it took him a few moments. He even did, you know, a second take and then then broke out into the big grin because he realized that there is that. Over the decades, again, making fun of how old I am, but more and more, I'd grown much more comfortable in that skin. And nowadays, I, like I've written songs for work things now, for instance, you know, the state does uh, a United Way campaign every year, and I will donate to the auction, like a house concert, do some sort of performance to help with the fundraising. So you have those, but even... Like, like one of the things that I learned to do in the, during the pandemic when we weren't gigging, I still wanted to work on those skills. So I learned a little bit more about video production. So now I'm using video production and making like short videos at work that, again, they're tied into to work-related things. And sometimes you'll hear my music playing very quietly underneath the video, you know, as part of this. And those are things that I can bring and do that allow sort of a, a blending of, of two different worlds, two different parts of my brain. Yeah. The thing that comes up for me is 
a phrase that I've been using for several years now, because my work is so ingrained with just the way that I want to live, right? You know, there's the notion of work-life balance, right? Well, that doesn't really apply to me because, you know, if I'm doing what I'm here to do, you know, yeah. here being on earth, there's no off the clock, right? You're just, you're just being who you are and you just happen to be, you know, pointing who you are in this particular professional direction. And so I've come to, to use the term work-life integration versus work-life balance. And it seems that that's kind of, you know, more along the lines of what you're, what you're finding here is there are definitely needs for you to compartmentalize, you know, from like a time perspective and a focus perspective, but you're finding ways to integrate learnings and insights and inspiration both ways, which is really, really cool. Absolutely. And, and you're right, the work-life integration, and I had to grow into that. I used to think, okay, music is the escape. And this is work and this is escape. This is the serious side. This is the play side. But work, you know, the, the traditional day job, you spent too much time on that not to recognize that it is your life. And you have to make decisions about the work you do and where you work and how you work with that mindset, I think. You know, if you say, if I'm going to spend, you know, eight, 10 hours a day doing this thing and I hate it, or it's it's not healthy for me in some way. Like that's a life thing. That's not that's not a separation thing. And you can't compartmentalize that. But it is something that you have to figure out. Like you have to work at it and find ways to do it. Even my friends who are full-time musicians or full-time creatives in whatever way, you also can't think of that not as work. Because again, you will burn out at some point, you know, either because like we talked about before, so you have to worry about how you're paying the bills and things like that. But you also need some structure. You need some discipline because it's not going to, it's not going to be enough. Yeah. Another kind of element of this that I think, again, I'm just speaking from my experience, but I've observed the other creatives, other artists struggle with the same thing. Like when you're pursuing your purpose or your passion as your career, you are inevitably going to run into pieces of that work that you don't want to do, right? You just flat out don't want to do it. And in my opinion, you're less likely to do those things unless you have learned how to accept that those things need to be done in another area of your life. And so you can kind of train your lack of desire about a particular part of your job or your work or whatever when someone else is paying you for it, right? When you have to do it, right? But then in your music side or your creative side, when you're really the only person holding yourself accountable, it's a lot easier to not do those things, right? And so I, I guess what comes up for you when, when we talk about that side of it, I'm guessing there are things with your music career that you don't always want to do, but is there an element that you can take from being in that same position with your day job where you've kind of trained yourself to accept, well, it doesn't matter if I want to do it or not, I have to do it, just like I have to do it for my day job. Yeah, I mean, it's the big picture, really, is what it comes down to, you know, and, and there are a couple of things, I think, as a musician, right, that fall into that category. Practice is one of them. And, and I've had, I have fun practicing, but there are other times where, you know, you're just running scales, right? You're working on finger right? When practice is hard and work, the only way you get through that, right, is remembering there's, there's a goal, there's a bigger picture, and you put in the work and you get there. 
And sometimes you do it with gigs, right? If you're a working musician, you will take gigs that you don't necessarily want to take, but they're good money or maybe they're, you know, you do it because you're paying your dues, right? You're making connections that are going to lead to bigger things and you got to have that perspective. If you go into it thinking, well, I have certain standards, I'm only going to take these kind of shows or I'm not going to sell out or whatever, that's probably not sustainable. Like you have to figure out where that balance is going to be in one way or another. I forget who, but somebody was comparing when you have a passion for music, recognizing that that's not enough, comparing it to a relationship, right? If you're in love with someone and you could really be in love and really passionate and, and have deep emotion and want to be committed to it, but you're not working on the relationship, right? You're not doing the hard stuff, figuring out how to, to live together, how to be together, how to communicate together, how to decide together. The passion is not going to carry you you know, to, to the point where you want it to, you're going to be limited in where it grows. And so passion for music, passion for writing, passion, for whatever that may be, is sort of the same thing. And if you're okay with it being a side thing, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I really believe that. I mean, in, in my songwriting group, for instance, there are people very passionate about music and writing songs have no intent of ever releasing anything, no intent. They could care less about making a, a dollar off it. They do it because they love it and because it's a balance for them. Great. But you know that that's where it fits and you're not, you know, trying to make it into something more. You got to figure that out. And sometimes it takes a lot of trial and error. But I do think big picture helps a lot. What is ultimately what you're trying to get to? What's your goal? And recognize that, Everything can move you toward the goal, but it's different than the goal itself. You know, it's it's a step in the direction, and sometimes it is a hard step. Yeah, well, then that then like brings up the the notion that it, you know it's not about the destination; it's about the journey, right? The joy is in the journey, and you know, which could be interpreted as contradictory, you know, to what you just said. But I think there's a balance there too, right? Like. You know, you, you got to keep your eyes on the prize and good perspective on what you're doing everything in the journey for. But if you're putting so much of that kind of motivation by just getting to that like proverbial there, yeah. right? Well, then you're not going to enjoy the process. Like looking at it from my own experience, there are definitely things I don't want to do, right? But there's insight, there's growth, there's reflection that can come out of more or less getting yourself to do something that you don't want to do and then seeing the results of actually doing that. It's interesting. There's a balance there for sure. You know, these first 15, 20 minutes alone, that could be incredibly valuable to uh, a lot of our listeners, those of whom are trying to, you know, go full time or struggling with, with the balance between a job that they don't like and, oh, I wish I had more time to do music. And if I just had more time to do music, then all this stuff would happen. I think that's, really interesting. And what I don't want artists to experience is like you had said with that comparison to like a relationship, right? The passion in the relationship, or in this case, like the passion for the music or the creativity, if you only want to do that and you're relying so much on that and you're not getting the results that you want because you're not doing the other work, it could lead to you resenting the passion. It could lead to you resenting the work 
And nobody wants that either. So just keeping an open perspective, I think, is important. And obviously, you're kind of the uh, epitome of, of that. How long have you been kind of in the groove that you are right now where you're comfortable and with the compartmentalization and the balance between your day job and your music life? So I, I shifted the balance. Like I say, I, I think there was a chunk in my life where I felt like, okay, I made a decision not to pursue that. And I couldn't give it up as a habit, but it was definitely a side thing. You know, I, I could play guitar around the bonfire and things like that, but I didn't worry about it being more than that. But it shifted for me when I went through uh, my divorce. And I'm remarried now, but at the time, it was a really stressful divorce. And it was a, at a time where I had a very demanding career, and I was suddenly a single dad of four kids. And... I recognized it's a little counterintuitive because you feel overwhelmed at those points in your life with everything going on. But I recognized that to deal with that feeling overwhelmed, I needed something for myself. Like I needed to feed that side of myself. And that's when I started a band again, which again, I, in, in retrospect, no regrets. At the time, it might have been a very stupid decision. <laughs> but... But it fed something that needed feeding and that wasn't being fed. So I formed a cover band, Jesse's First Time, and it was a group of friends that we wanted to make music, and we did, and we went out and gigged, and, and I was having fun, you know, and, and making connections and things like that. And then that evolved into one of my current bands, the Front Porch Rockers, the cover band was a seven-piece classic rock kind of cover band. And I started getting requests like, can you do like a backyard party or something like that or an acoustic thing? So developed a little three-piece acoustic version of the cover band that suddenly actually started getting more gigs. And per musician, and you, you know, I could use my own sound system, don't have to. Suddenly I was also making more money on that. And so I realized, all right, well, this actually kind of makes a little more sense in if I have to choose one way or another to go. So that became the Front Porch Rockers, which now is in, gosh, I want to say the 12th year, playing around Milwaukee. There came a point where I'm like, you know, I want to go back to writing more original music. So I started doing that. And that now has led into the Upperulies. But all along the way, like those decisions were sort of deliberate. And even the idea of forming the Unruly's, most of the original music, I, I was performing solo and it was fine. But in my head, I was hearing with songs, you know, with the full band backing. And so I finally got to the point where I said, I, I want a band. I want a band that's willing to, to learn and play original music. And so brought together again, a different group of friends last January and said, let's give this a shot. But again, using those skills we were talking about before, like, how is that going to work? What's that going to look like? What are the goals realistically in, in terms of this? How does that balance out with front porch rockers and with day job, you know, the one that provides insurance and all of that sort of thing. So still approaching it deliberately, but yeah, like it kind of evolved into now it's, it's more than the hobby. Now it's actually something that is more of a business. It is an entrepreneurial business. And suddenly, I mean, I'm managing three different social media accounts. 
I don't know how that happened, except, <laughs> that, except that you you learn to do it and you have to do it, and suddenly it's part of the thing. It's part of what it all looks like, and it's based all on those deliberate choices you make along the way. Yeah, that's so interesting, Jesus. So, you know, after we've given listeners now a really good landscape of what life is like for you now and what it's been in recent years in terms of your kind of finding this groove and this balance, let's go back to the beginning. If I'm not mistaken, you immigrated here from Mexico yep. to Southeast Wisconsin. I did. So my uh, father was from Mexico. My mother was from Michigan. They met in college. He, he had come to the University of Michigan and met, fell in love, and moved to Mexico. So I was born in Mexico, immigrated when I was five. Okay. And we came to uh, rural Wisconsin partly because neither of my parents really liked being in a city. But my dad worked for General Electric. Okay. So he was able to come over on a visa sponsored by GE and work out of Waukesha. And that's where he worked as a whole career. Cool. And how much, if any, do you remember of being five years old and that experience of, you know, trying to assimilate in Wisconsin culture as, you know, a five-year-old? So it's, it, it was definitely a shift. When you're five, you don't have the same groundings, I think, you sure. as you get a little older. So in a lot of ways, I was more able to pick up and move. But I remember I was part of a generation where we were in the U.S. now, so we were only going to speak English. So suddenly we were only speaking English, you know, and, and before that it had been sort of a blend. And that was a shift. And there were, of course, kind of the usual thing wherever you'd move of like getting to know new neighbors and getting starting a new school, things like that. But otherwise, just really odd sort of bits and pieces. When we first came to Wisconsin, GE put us up in a hotel for a while. And when you're five years old, like living in a hotel is pretty, pretty awesome. Um, it, it was different. I remember uh, McDonald's, okay. it was not, which was something very different. My mother, for most of her life, wasn't as comfortable with unfamiliar things. So she knew McDonald's and she knew what she could get at McDonald's. So we ate probably too much at McDonald's that was right across the street from the hotel. And I thought this was, again, awesome. I remember uh, Ronald McDonald came to open up McDonald's with Hills Corners, Forest Home and Highway Under. And like we made this trip out there when I'm a kid. And, you know, here comes Ronald McDonald to help open this new McDonald's. And I still remember that. But I also remember, like, I immigrated the year that Star Wars came out. Oh. And so for me, the experience of coming to the U.S. and the Star Wars phenomenon it's just absolutely blended in my head. And I have a distinct memory that Christmas of going to Brookfield Square Mall and Santa arrived by helicopter through the ceiling of like, you know, in his little castle, along with Darth Vader. So you had Darth Vader and Santa Claus like arriving and my five-year-old brain was thrilled, like no kind of sense of disconnect. And I don't remember thinking like, what a country. But to me, like that was that was what the experience was like. What was, I think, more challenging is as I was growing up is figuring out how to balance that dual culture, dual heritage, you know, like I was aware of differences, 
my father had a heavy accent. I had an unusual name, you know, I mean, there's no other Jesuses anywhere around me at that point. We need food that this was before, like you could buy tortillas at the local pick and say, right? Like you had to go find specialty stores and we did, right? So there were a lot of different experiences that people around me didn't have. And I had to figure out both what that meant in terms of, let's say, fitting in, right? Like, was I weird? Was I odd? Was I, uh, like, was I different in a, in a bad way somehow? And I don't want to make that overly dramatic. I mean, in a way, like every young kid goes through that with whatever they've got. For me, that it was around sort of this, this identity and this heritage. And then later, as I got older, it was figuring out sort of the other way, like, what does it mean for me to be Hispanic and Latino? Like, what is that identity like? Because as I went off into the world, I suddenly realized that, like, that identity was very different for me than it was for a lot of other people that were Hispanic immigrants that had grown up in an urban environment, that grew up speaking Spanish, that had a, a much stronger sense of identity that I did, or at least a different sense. And so I had to kind of balance that out too, you know, and figure that out. But I got a, a lot out of it, including my music. My father, he owned the music on Sundays. That was the rule in our house. On Sundays, he got to always pick the music. And he played classical music on his uh, LPs. Um, we had one of the big cabinet record players. And it was classical music or it was Mexican music. It was mariachi tunes or ballads or rancheros. And so growing up, hearing that and getting, that was also different. That was also odd. And I didn't really realize it at the time until I got older, but suddenly it's like, that was very much a part of my experience, you know? And having that alongside the music on the radio, having that alongside my mom's records, which was a lot more, it was the Simon and Garfunkel, Peter Paul Mary, that sort of late 60s uh, folk, Neil Diamond, and all of that blended together. And as I've gotten into music now as an adult, really have come to appreciate how that tapestry has really influenced me. Even though the music I play may not be, for instance, in Spanish, it still borrows from so many of those traditions and also that love of just what music can be and what it can do. So it was a, it was a good childhood. That's awesome. So how did the consumption of all of these different types of music end up creating a draw to creating it yourself? And what were the, what was the influence there or the inspirations? Just kind of, what was that experience like? My parents were very encouraging. My mother in particular, I think, my father was more serious. My mother was much more, you know, life is meant to be enjoyed and music was part of that. So we had a piano in the house and my sisters and I took the obligatory piano lessons, you know, when we were little. And we always sang. We were a household that like we'd go on car rides, the radio would be on and we'd all sing along. We were one of those families, and my family now, still the same way, where like, not only are you singing along to the radio, but everyone's got designated parts. And it was very joyful, right? Like that, that was a big thing, is music is something you enjoy and you did for fun. But the, the thing that really led me to create, I think, more independently, in elementary school, 
third grade, our music teacher, they were doing some construction. So the music teacher had to come around to the classrooms instead of going to the music room. And he uh, came with a guitar. The music lessons mostly were just singing along together to songs that people knew and that he knew also. So a lot of John Denver, but also like Eddie Rabbit was popular at the time, Kenny Rogers, stuff that I knew from the radio. And here we were singing it. And, and it was the teacher with one guitar that was essentially like a whole orchestra, you know, like one guy, one guitar, and you suddenly could make music. So I went home and I said, I want to do that. I want to learn how to do that. That is awesome. My parents were very supportive, got my first guitar, got lessons. I uh, really enjoyed the lessons, learned a lot. But after a year, what I wasn't doing was practicing. And my parents said, we're, we're not going to keep paying for lessons if you're not practicing. And I, I thought that was fair, but I kept the guitar and started with the school orchestra a little later. I was playing bass, uh, contrabass. Then I would start picking up the guitar again and working on music when I figured out that he could help me meet girls. Uh, and now I had another motivator. Yeah. <laughs> songs. So it's a combination. Mostly I'm self-taught, but I had those foundational pieces. I'm a big believer, like get that music education in when, when kids are young, just because you never know when it's going to turn into something. You know? Yeah, like the younger you are, the more sponge-like you are, and you can be shaped. So it was probably a great thing that you had that foundation of lessons that you could take and kind of explore in your own ways. So you, you mentioned the kind of, I don't want to say the struggle, but the challenge with the identity of being Hispanic, yeah. you know, a child in, you know, Southeast Wisconsin, rural Southeast Wisconsin at that. Did you find that learning that playing music could help you pick up girls, for instance? Did you lean on the music side of your identity to help kind of feel more comfortable about the different heritage and different ethnicity and things like that? Was that a part of your identity defining? That's interesting. It, in some ways, I mean, yeah, I suppose it, it did help me meet girls, but more than that, it, it helped me fit in, mm -hmm. right? Like figuring out where I fit in. And in some ways, like, yeah, being, you know, the one Hispanic kid in, in McQuantico High School was a little bit odd. But if there's only one of you, right, it's not like you're grouped together. You're just sure. trying to figure that out. But, but you know, I was very grateful. I, I was very smart. I was a really good student. And that can also be isolating, you know, when you're in high school, figuring that out. So to be able to say, okay, yeah, but I play guitar and I can play the songs that are on the radio and I can play them at parties or whatnot, and I can sing and stuff. That was definitely a way to fit in. You know, my first band I formed in high school and it was very much like I, I didn't do it to be cool, but I was very aware that like, this is this is like something different, you know, this is a different track for me and, and something that I can use to, to distinguish me and, and connect. Yeah. People are drawn to novelty, you know, especially when it's novelty that they wish that they could do, you know, you know, there's obviously a novelty to being, you know, the only Hispanic kid in a high school, but I don't know that a lot of white kids, for instance, are saying, Oh man, I wish I could be Hispanic, you know? Yeah. 
there is a certain like level of so what. Right. When you're a high schooler, right? You think everything. You just convince like everyone sees this, and this is a big deal, and and it's not. You know, right? right. It's really not. Everyone's worried about themselves, but but you're aware of it. Right? Mm-hmm. You're you, you're aware that you're different somehow, and that can be stressful. So figuring out ways to connect, you know, and 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 there are a lot of studies on this, right? Like people start behaving certain ways because they want to fit in or they're, they don't want to be seen as unique or different and things like that. It's much healthier to pick up a guitar and, and learn some songs. And, you know, that's, that's good. So you, you had this band in high school. Do you mind me asking what the name of it was? It was As We Are with As with a Z because it was the A's. So that's that, that makes As sense. We Are. And it was pop rock kind of sound, but... It was uh, two other things came out of that band. One is that I wrote songs. So it was not just covers, but also wrote original songs to do with this band. Two, it was my first foray into recording. And it was a friend of mine who was older. Actually, Carter Honeycutt is a well-known local musician. And this is a younger brother who got apparently a lot of Carter's recording equipment and set up essentially a studio in in his house. And we went over there recording the tape and actually recorded two albums of original music, which, like, I don't know that I fully appreciated at the time what a big deal that would become for me. Like, it just seemed like a fun thing to do when you're kids and, you know, what the heck, let's do it. And, like, one of the songs got played at the University of Waukesha, Wisconsin-Waukesha College radio station because somebody knew someone whose older sister was a DJ. But we just thought that was the coolest thing. Like, you know, we had a song on the radio. And even though that band, you know, ended up drifting in as as things like that do, it was a big experience. Like, it was the first big step into taking my music seriously. You know, and not just being a, a thing for fun and, and something that's cool. So I, I remember it. And I should also say, in the spirit of meeting girls, my wife now, she and I knew each other in high school. And she still has a copy of that cassette that I recorded uh, back then. So, yeah. What a cool story, man. He's off, man. That's amazing. <laughs> so then did that band take you through your high school years? It did. And then I... Uh, I went out east for school, and I did end up forming a band out there, too, called the Discount Band, because our motto was, we can't outplay everyone, but we can outsell them, underbid them. So we were the Discount Band, and, and that was fun. And that, you know, actually, that's the other thing I, I learned through those experiences, is how to play with other musicians, which is its own skill, right? And it's something you practice at, and it's something you got to figure out. So all different people, different levels of talent, figuring out how to keep a band together, even for a short time, is is not easy. It's a miracle. It is, honestly. But but again, kept that up. And then it, it really was, by the time I got to law school, that's where, again, at the end of college, I had to make a decision. What am I going to do with my life? And I felt like I was sort of putting the music aside but not really because, you know, I kept playing in church in, in the music ministry. Our law school had an acapella group called Public Hearing. Say with the acapella group, you know, but 
but a different so a different type of keeping it up in in its own way and then then you have kids and that's pretty much your life for several years but uh i have a handful of friends who are attorneys and you know they look back at their experience of going through law school most if not all of them don't have like fond memories of that experience you know it it's grueling and i've heard you know my friends say you know law school like completely changes the way that you think and uh, a handful of those folks were artists or musicians in high school and that was their creative expression their creative outlet and during their experience in law school they were just so swamped with reading and 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 assignments and whatnot that they stepped away from that they kind of had to give it up but it seems like you at least kind of held on loosely, but held on to to that music side of your life. Do you get the impression that that helped make your law school experience a little less difficult than somebody who maybe were just, you know, nose to the grindstone for however long it takes you to get through law school? It does help. I think the thing that helped me most get through law school was that I took a little bit of time off between undergrad and law school. People go straight into law school. They're still focused on sort of getting the best grades and getting the best placements, which there's nothing wrong with that, except that's not a life decision. Like working toward those report cards is something you do when you're you're young, but it doesn't really matter at all. So I had a, a little different perspective and I got married my first year of law school, which again, it's an outside perspective. You know, suddenly you realize life is about more than just this law degree. And in in law school is intense, and and I went to a very competitive law school where a lot of the students there were burning the midnight oil all the time, working up to to get on law review and, you know, hope for that court of appeals clerkship without ever asking, is this actually something I want, right? You you just sort of assume it is because that's the thing, but... Uh, going into law school with a broader perspective, and even after law school, deciding, you know, where do I want to practice? What do I want to do? I wasn't just looking for what's the most prestigious law firm, what's the biggest salary, but I was asking questions that nowadays they seem pretty basic, like, where do I want to live? How are the schools there? You know, how many hours am I going to have to work? And how is I going to balance it? Like, they seem like fundamental life questions, but when you're caught up in those moments in that phase of life, you kind of forget to focus on it, mm-hmm. you know? So law school, it does teach you to think differently. It changes a lot of things and, and in many ways for the better. I'm a better writer. I'm more disciplined. There are a lot of things I learned in law school and then from law practice that I would not trade, but I never once sort of tied my identity just to that particular post, you know, Mm -hmm. that particular role. When you got your degree and were exploring, you know, where to, where to point this, did you consider music or entertainment law? I didn't because I had really developed a passion for uh, civil rights. Okay. Um, And so my undergraduates in sociology, and it was largely attributed to some uh, race studies classes that just sort of blew my mind. You know, it was something I'd never been exposed to before. That led to thinking about how do 
people interact and get along, you know, and, and how do you work through conflict? And a lot of it tied back to my own identity journey too, right? And uh, what does it mean to be Hispanic in a broader context? So that academic line led me to, to get really interested. So I studied uh, civil rights and employment law, and that's where I really felt my passion was. And still it's, right? That's that's still what then led me into human resources leadership and uh, and in that space and very much a part of, of where I am. So, no, weirdly, never thought about music law or entertainment law. In my mind, I think at the time they were still separate things. Sure. You know, music is over here and then the, the day job, the law thing, and that's over here. And, and so, so be it. Interesting. Have you ever applied your legal expertise to other musicians like I write my own contracts so I mean having that skill set is really useful oh for sure (laughs) and so I'm able to to do things that I know a lot of musicians you know don't don't have and I understand the basics of copyright law and a lot of uh, music rights issues that are complicated and and difficult to explain. So yeah, I borrow from that uh, as well. I've never really had musicians as clients or have worked in that space. Again, a lot of it was separation in terms of kind of where my brain was. But I have, you know, it's come up even in, in my law career. You get to know other lawyers who find out you're a musician and it turns out they are too. I remember jamming in uh, one of my partner's basements because he was uh, a closet drummer and he wanted to play uh, along. And so I had my guitar and we just, you know, would jam out there. There was a lawyer in uh, Madison who I remember going to his office for a deposition and he had a banjo hanging on the wall. And so you say, hey, is that your banjo? And, you know, before you know it, he's picking away on the banjo. Not something you expect to happen in your practice, but there are a lot of us out there, right? There are a lot of us where you you have this this other side, this love and foundation, and, and you care about it enough to actually hang a banjo in your office, you know, even though you know that's going to scare away clients, and yet there it is because you want to be able to pick it up and pluck at it and and do whatever you can, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I've given much thought to the number of attorneys who are also musicians. It, it just seems like two different types of people, to be honest. I don't know what it is, but there are a couple all-lawyer bands out there, and even in Milwaukee, that they're under the radar because they'll only get together once in a while, but they get together regularly and they, they jam. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you, you got out of law school, you figured out you know your professional life. At that point... That's oversimplifying. It, yeah, it was <laughs> right, right, right. I got on a path. Sure, sure. Was music just kind of like something that you did individually in your free time while you kind of got on your feet professionally and then picked it back up when you when you had your feet underneath of you? Or did you kind of keep the side hustle the whole time? I kept the the music ministry was was sort of the common thread. And between getting my professional feet under me and also raising four young kids. Sure. That was a big part of it. But the catalyst for me getting back into it was the divorce that was sort of a, a need, but it was also balanced with the fact that like my kids were a little older then too, which made it possible even to have a band and and figure that out. I couldn't have done that when they were much younger because they were 
they were my priority. Keeping it up, though, was along the way so that I could get back into it was great, you know. My faith life is important to me, and the music ministry was certainly part of that. But you also learn so much from playing different types of music, right? And all the times you're you're playing church music and learning new music, and somebody else is choosing the music for you, right? So you're like, this is what you're going to play, and you got to figure out how to play it. That's a really valuable skill for musicians to have as well, you know? And when I talk to young musicians or when I talk to young people who want to get into music, I always recommend play everything like play, and play with as many people as you can. You know, if you're really into hip hop, you should absolutely jam with a bluegrass band. You know, if you, you think you're all about the classical music, like spend some time with hair metal if you can, like in the, you know, and I'm using extreme examples, but the point is like you learn something from every experience. One of the weirdest ones I had, I was at a party where there were older people there who were all apparently members of some accordion club and they broke out into playing accordion music and somebody had a guitar. So you're like, sure, what the heck? I'll play along to these polkas and things like that. It's fun, but it also challenges you. Now you got to think about what you're doing in a different way. And you get better because of it. Yeah, I mean, I split my time between like the music industry and the startup industry. And, you know, there's lots of talk about innovation, right, in the startup industry. I'm a firm believer that there are no more original ideas. Mm -hmm. There are only original combinations of already established ideas. And what I found is that innovation tends to come from, you know, a collision of tactics and strategies and or problems that exist in different industries, right? And you know, something that might work in the, you know, the manufacturing industry as an approach, but has never been really explored as an approach in the water industry or something like that. It's almost like you're borrowing things from one. So I'm sure it works the same way with genres, right? It does. And and what you say is absolutely true. I, it really is. I, and I'd like to hold that hope that there are still some new ideas there, but but they're rare. And really a lot of that creativity comes from being able to combine things in a way that is new or that advances something. And definitely true when it comes to music. And it's not always great. <laughs> right. But, but like, like for instance, I think about country music and country music has the industry has favored commercialism for, for a while. Right. And so you turn on modern country radio and you're getting drum tracks and they're boring drum tracks. I mean, honest to God, like they, nobody is hiring the great beat producers to do some of this stuff that is just sort of being mumble rap with a twang over country music. So I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing, but that's inspired other ideas. And you've got a lot of fascinating blends going on. I think the way that hip hop and jazz uh, who have been partners for a long time, but they're going into some really fascinating experimental space, you know, and 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 bringing with it uh, world music and electronica and and stuff like that. Nothing that I play, but man, that is just there's some mind blowing stuff bringing in spoken word and and everything else into to new places is fantastic. I love that. I love seeing how that all comes together. 
and the technology also, right? The technology is another element to that where I might pick on the drum machines in country music, but the fact that that technology has come out of it and, and stuff like that, and it's only a matter of time before somebody in Nashville figures out that, hey, if we pay a little more to get some more interesting beats, we could, you know, do something cooler. Uh, so we'll see where that all goes, but... Yeah. yeah, it is interesting to see the, the collision between music and technology and how that continues to create, you know, evolutions within genres, like cross collaborations you're seeing a lot more of now, you know, you mentioned like bluegrass and, and hip hop or, you know, classical and hair metal, like, while that may be just an exercise to kind of heighten or enhance your creativity, it's also it's making its way onto stages and into recording studios now. And there are full bands and collaborations that exist around these really seemingly incompatible genres that are making some really beautiful music and interesting at the very least. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about the unruly's and like how that came together. What was like the mission you'd spoken earlier about, you know, just you're wanting a platform to, to write original music, to perform original music. So take me through that process, because you said yes. it's about, what, like a year and a half old? Yeah, so January of 22 okay. uh, was our first rehearsal. It took a couple years for me, like the, the seed was planted probably during the pandemic when I was trying to record my own music and having some luck again with the technology, but it's not, you can't be a one-man band and be at the top of your game, really. So I had this idea, but I held off because... Putting a band together is hard work. Our goal the first year was two hours of music. We want to be able to do a two-hour set of original songs. That's an ambitious goal because those are all songs you got to learn that there's, you know, you, you got to put together, you got to figure it out. And not every musician wants to do that. But I finally decided, you know, it's time. Like, it's time to do this. Our bass player and drummer had been with a, a different band that broke up. The bass player, particularly, and I had been friends for a while, and I said, you're in between projects. Are you interested in doing this? And they were. The lead guitarist had played um, with a couple uh, couple different projects and cover bands that I had touched on in some way. So we knew each other, and I knew he was very talented, and I just said, is this something you'd be interested in? As far as I know, he'd never really touched original music. And he was. He was interested in, in something different, a challenge, and just was up for it. And then Paula, who's been my singing partner for almost all these projects, she was in Jesse's first time. She is one of the fobbing members of the From Porch Rockers. It was easy to say, like, I, I, I want to do this with her as well. So never played together this group of musicians as a single unit. And it turned out uh, not only were they all good musicians, but we had a good chemistry, which frankly is more important, even with <laughs> the skills. It's like we, we're getting a lot. The Unruly's, which I'm very proud of as a band name. <laughs> Naming the band is, of course, one of the big challenges as well. Originally, there was a joke about calling ourselves the Unruly Greys. But uh, Paula did not want any name that made any sort of reference to how old we actually were. Mm. Uh, so that got shortened to the Unruly's. We had three gigs last year and uh, were part of the uh, Hashtag I Voted Festival. 
and it was great. It was great fun. It was well received. We we uh, we stayed together. We got along and and uh, and got through all this music. Now we've recorded our first single. We recorded it at Tilbury City Studios in Milwaukee here. That's coming out June first, and we got gigs lined up in um, I think not till September October. But again, one of the one of the dangers of bringing together other working musicians is you have to work around everyone's calendars. Nevertheless, we we've got a good lineup. You know, we've got we've got things set up into the future. We're still playing together. We just recorded a video to support a little white lie, which is the single. Putting all these things together, it's it's uh, it's been great, and it's fun to get loud. That's the other thing. So. I love acoustic music. That's my preference. That's that's where a lot of my love is. But man, plugging in, getting the drums behind and all of that, like you still get that rush that, you know, I had back in high school. Well, suddenly it's like, all right, we're going to get the neighbors calling the cops on us. And that's still cool. Right? Uh, to hear that coming out of the lawyer's mouth is great. It's just amazing. Let's zoom in on that single, Little White Lie. What was the inspiration for that song? What does the song mean? You know, what was the recording process like? Was that the first song that the Unruly's learned? And if not, how did you pick it as the first single? Just everything about that song that you want to kind of unload. Yeah, so Little White Lie was written a, a year or two, I guess, before the Unruly's got together. It's different than a lot of the songs I get written because a lot of times the music that I wrote was the stereotypical sensitive singer-songwriter stuff, right? A lot of love songs, but also songs about, you know, hard times in life and emotions and stuff like that. Beautiful stuff. Again, I love it. But Little White Lie is different because it. I wanted it to be a fun rock song, you know. And it's the point of view of this guy who is speaking to someone and basically trying to persuade them uh, not to tell him, whoever him is, about the kiss they shared the night before telling the little white lie. And so he's sort of, uh, you know, trying to persuade her that, that it won't do anyone any good to, to blow this up out of proportion. And it just over, over uh, drum beats, over uh, pretty aggressive guitar, and you I'm pretty much screaming the lyrics. And, and again, it, it was so different from a lot of the, the quieter stuff or the, the acoustic stuff. It wasn't the first song that the unruly's learned but it was part of what makes the unruly's the unruly's is that sort of attitude that that sort of sound people ask me sometimes all right what are you going for with the unruly's in terms of the sound and i and i picture like the mid-70s era rolling stones okay you know there's a little bit of twang and, and they got back into the blues but there's still that debauchery and, and a little bit of glam and stuff like that that just really makes you, it, it brings out that fun side of rock and roll, you know, that you, you don't take too seriously. You know, you, you can approach the art as art, but don't you dare take it too seriously because it's still just rock and roll, man. And and Little White Lie, I think, does a great job of encapsulating that. A little bit of humor, a little bit of that tongue-in-cheek, but very playable, you know, very uh, catchy. Yeah. And I know with some bands, you know, there's the polished version of it that you hear in the recorded format. And then, 
you know, when that band is on stage playing that song live, it can get a little loose, you know, get a little bit more fun. Is that the same with the Unruly's? It is, with the exception that the recording is intentionally more ragged. Oh, okay. Uh, again, because it's that sound. So it was not entirely recorded live, like not in one take or anything like that, but it was very much going to capture that feel of it. We did some you know, lining up the different parts and a little bit of overdubs, but for the most part, we wanted to capture that energy that you get. And so the live performances that we've done of that probably sound a lot like what the recording does. The guitar solo might be a little longer and different breaks might be a little bit longer, but for the most part, yeah, this is, this is kind of an in your face. What you hear is what you get sort of thing. And it's, uh, yeah, it's cool. And we try to do that honestly with the other songs I, we're looking forward to doing more recording. But I think that this approach works for us. And I can definitely be one of those people where I will spend way longer trying to get a song just right, you know, trying to get everything just right. But you lose something from that. And, and this particular project benefits from the energy that you get, that little raw kind of approach. This is a question I often ask guests. And sometimes I get a very clear answer here in terms of their preference for the stage or the studio? I couldn't do one or the other. Okay. I think I prefer performing more, performing on the stage. But there is something about crafting a song, especially with original songs, and doing that in the studio. And, and technology now allows you to try different things. So, like, for instance, I'll take a song and putts with it, like just in garage band or something to see, well, what would this sound like in three, four time? <laughs> and, and you can make some adjustments and do that and hear it, which you can do with a live band, but it's more complicated. And, and I like doing that. So I, I enjoy the studio process. I'm glad I learned a lot about home recording and I've got my little basement studio that I adore having. But I also, I couldn't stand being cooped up during the pandemic and not being able to gig and not being able to share the songs with an audience that's going to give you feedback. Live streams were cool, but you don't get that energy. And it's not the same. It is not the same. So yeah, I like performing. I'm really excited to go into gigging season and get in front of audience. That's awesome. One more thing I want to dive into here is this kangaroo lake songwriters collective yeah. how did that come together feels like something that that you just kind of fell into or you just crazy idea and like gets people together and all of a sudden it turned into something that has sustained so i i had the idea i guess it would have been six or seven years ago of participating in a songwriting retreat i wanted to, to get into a retreat but a lot of the retreats as i was researching them they had uh, a lot of structure and programming and they had speakers, all great. But what I needed was the retreat part because again, going back to that balance, I'm, I was struggling to find time to get into that creative space where I could just write and to write with people that you could workshop songs, right? And that that is surprisingly rare, to be honest. I mean, uh, the retreats that are out there are built like that. 
And I was talking to one of my friends who is a guitarist uh, and singer and uh, was mentioning this is what I want to do. And he said, well, he he's not much of a songwriter, but he has a house up on Kangaroo Lake in Door County that's big enough and would be really interested in doing something. So the original group was seven. We're up to nine or ten. And the people who participate in the retreats, the number fluctuates but there's still that core group. Everyone brings something to the table. We are almost exclusively acoustic guitarists in terms of kind of where that influence comes from. But stylistically, everyone sort of brings their own flavor to it. But we get along. We built good trust because workshopping songs requires trust, you know, and we're able to do that. And, uh, at least one other group has come from there that uh, that formed with uh, some of the other musicians. And it's been great. And we still, every year, we have a, a weekend retreat, at least one of them. And some years we're able to squeeze in even like three or four. But we do it when we can. And is that like a full weekend? Is it a week? Like, what, take me through the experience yeah. if, you're, if you're comfortable sharing. Absolutely. Some people get up there Thursday night. Usually I, I end up going Friday morning. There's some structure to it in that we uh, assign meals ahead of time. Okay. So who's responsible for preparing what? And there is a little bit of a schedule in terms of here's writing time where the rule is that you, you can ask someone if they want to write with you, but they can say no. But the property is large enough. You can find a corner go work on your own, and then there's a time where you come back together and you share. And then typically in the evenings, there is some good whiskey and we jam on songs. So you're working out original stuff, and then usually in the evenings, it's sitting around the fire drinking whiskey and like, all right, let's play let's play a Simon and Garfunkel song, let's play a Beatles song, and, and just enjoying the music. Go to bed wake up the next day, do the same thing. And it's, it's, you repeat it. Sometimes we'll go out on the lake on, on the boat just to, to take that break or go on a hike or something like that. But that's the difference between that experience and, and others is that you really are there to work and the, being up in nature, being with like-minded people that, you know, give good feedback and have great ideas and come with different styles, uh, different approaches to it is invaluable. At least half my songs have come from those retreats. Wow. That's amazing. This seems like the type of thing that most artists would be really drawn to. Mm -hmm. So the fact that there are a solid nine people, is that by choice to keep it small and intimate? It is. There are space constraints. So that's part of it for a particular retreat. But the trust issue is actually a bigger factor. Because we, we did add people, and every time it was, because of the way the group formed, it would be like an email from someone saying, hey, I know this person, they would be a really great fit, can I bring them along? And there was always some hemming and hawing, because you're bringing in a stranger, an outsider, into this mix. And even if one of us will vouch for her or him, you know, there's still sort of that feeling out. It's an interesting thing. I, I am much more open to collaborating with other people. Maybe uh, I have enough cockiness about my music that I can take feedback and criticism. 
which is, I guess, a weird way to put it, but I, I'm used to it. I'm comfortable with it. I know that not everything I produce is the most important song I've ever written. But you put a lot of emotion and a lot of yourself into music. And some of the songs people write can get very personal. Some of my songs become very personal. And it is a very scary thing to take something you create that is so much of yourself, share it with others, and invite them to tell you what needs to be changed about it. So I get that. I get where you need a certain level of trust. But I also firmly believe that that's how you get better is you need to have someone else someone who isn't you hear the song in a way that you can't possibly hear it and tell you what they heard what you do with it is up to you but like it's really a critical part of of writing a song even more important uh, than performing it like i a lot of musicians will say you got to perform a song if you ever want to know you know how people are going to respond that's true, but in a lot of settings, you perform a song for people who have been drinking or who are there to tell you you're awesome and they want to have fun. And there's a lot of great energy from that, but it might not necessarily teach you a lot about how to get better, you know? So when you find those relationships or opportunities, like you, you got to grab onto them. If you want to get better, you have to make yourself vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And so true. And even, you know, in, in the entrepreneurial side, right? Like if you go in just with great ideas and surround yourself with people who will tell you, oh, these are great ideas, and you're not connecting with people who are going to tell you hard truths or who are going to question you or push you, you know, I'm sure it's the same way. You get a great idea. It's hard to sort of open that up and, and have it not be seen as the way. But if you don't do that, you know, you're not going to to maximize the potential of it. Definitely. Like, I struggled with that early in my entrepreneurial career, but now it's like a default. Like, right. the idea is just the idea, and you have to be able to articulate it in a way that allows for people to give feedback on it. And I go to the people who I know are going to rip it to shreds first yeah. before the people who I know are going to go, oh, that's great. Yeah, super cool, you know? Absolutely. So that vulnerability piece is key. So let's just kind of bring this to a close and because you've listened to episodes before, you know, the last question, given what you've shared with me though, so far, I'm, I'm so eager to know what your perspective is on what you want the listeners of this podcast uh, to know about you. What's the most important thing that you want listeners to know about Jesus or the unrulies or just who you are as a person? What I want people to know is that Ultimately, this is something that I do, the creation of music and the bands that I play with. We do it because we love it. That's it. When I write a song, there is something that I want to share. Sometimes if I'm lucky, there's something profound in it or some, you know, some deep piece to it. But it's not a, an act of desperation. It's an act of love to be able to get it out there and be like, this is cool. Like, this is something I get excited about. Even a sad song and have that connection. And I think that um, the people who are going to really love the Unruly's or really love my stuff are the people who are open to, the, to that, right? And are looking for, like, I want to know what you think is cool. And I want to see if, you know, where that connection is. So 
that's what I would say. It's like, this is fun. Music should always be fun and, and social. And it is for me. And that's why I do it. And that's why I love doing it. That's why I keep doing it as long as I can. That's awesome, man. Seriously. Like, I can feel that from you. It's, it's who you are. You know, there's, you, you are exactly who you say you are, I guess is a good way of putting it. And, and I can feel that from you. So I appreciate you sitting down with me and, and sharing all these stories and these different perspectives you have. It's a unique story. The attorney musician is unique in itself, but just the way that you've approached that, the discipline and the balance that you've been able to find, it's really admirable. And I'm happy to know your story now. Hey, Zeus, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Um, well... If you want to know what I think. I mean, if you want my opinion. Don't make this something that it isn't. I mean, nothing really happened. You don't want to stir up problems. You don't want to make things worse. You might give the wrong impression of exactly what occurred. So I don't think you should tell him. I don't think you should tell him. cultures it's tradition to kiss a friend good night but he might not understand this and he might not think it's right so I don't think you should tell him I don't think you should tell him not saying it was nothing. Maybe you felt something too. Or maybe I'm just wishing. I can't tell you what to do. But I don't think you should tell me. I don't think you should tell me. I don't think you should tell me. Thanks for listening to the Musicians Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. 
Find us on social media at The Musician's Venture on Facebook and Instagram and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms. And hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musician's Venture podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard with theme music by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>